Bringing in, I'm Michael Hotard, bringing you another episode of the Hotard Huddle Podcast. On today's episode, I am joined by a good friend and former teacher of mine. That is Nikki Boudreau, who is an instructor at the one, the only, Nichols State University. Um, just to kind of give a backstory before we bring her on. Uh, so, uh, during my time at Nichols, uh, I studied mass communication. She actually taught the first course that I ever took for MassCom. And it was so wonderful, so great that I, that I took it twice. And when I say that, I'm completely bullshitting, you know. Wound up with a C in the course because I wasn't the most diligent student. But, uh, no, she taught several of my classes. And then later down the line when I landed the job as the sports editor of the Nichols, where she was the advisor for that. Um, and since then, we've developed a great friendship, great relationship. So we'll kind of share some stories there. But before we bring Nikki on, here's a message for our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Cheers for Ears. No Disney trip or Disney theme park party is complete without your very own character-customized Mickey ears. That's right, any theme you want made right into your Mickey ears or Mickey hat. They're festive, fun, and affordable. For my family's next Disney trip, I purchased our very own Mike and Sully themed hats for my son and I. We absolutely love them and we'll use them for our trips here on out. Get your very own custom ears and let them make your dreams come true so you can look great and live your happily ever after in good fashion for your next trip. Receive 10% off if you let them know Hotard Huddle referred you. That's Cheers for Ears. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram at Cheers for Ears. Visit the information section on the episode or HotardHuddle.com for more information about their social pages and email. Again, Cheers for Ears. Receive 10% off your purchase when you let them know Hotard Huddle referred you. So bring some added magic to your next Disney trip with cheers for ears. So without further ado, let's bring on our guest, Nikki Boudreau. Nikki, thank you so much for joining me. I'm excited to have you. I know we've been um, talking about it, had to reschedule this a couple of times because of the hurricane and some other things that happened, but we finally made it happen. So thank you so much for coming on. Yes, thank you. I'm excited. It's always fun when we get to chat, so to do it in this method, I think, is going to be a real good time. Absolutely. Um, so let's just uh, go ahead and start off with a little backstory here. As I kind of alluded to in the intro, um, you know, you were a student advisor of mine and also a former teacher of mine, um, so you were the first really person that I met within the mass comm department. So let's just talk about how how that all came to be. You know, you uh, pretty much went to Nichols and never left. So talk a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, almost. Um, I started at Nichols in the fall of 1994 as a mass comm major, not to age myself, but oh well. Um, and Back then, you could specialize in print journalism, broadcast journalism, or public relations, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I did print and PR, and it served me well, as I've been able to really use kind of both sides of my degree. I feel like, you know, I make jokes in class that sometimes I have to turn off my journalism brain and turn on my PR brain, or vice versa, but that's how I started um, when I was 
in college at Nichols, I was on the staff at the Nicholsworth. So just like you, I got my feet wet in student media. And then I also, I was managing editor. And then the year I was supposed to be editor, I was offered an internship at Terrebonne General Medical Center in Homa in public relations. So I was kind of, that was kind of that defining moment where I had to decide, you know, am I going journalism or am I going PR? And I took that internship instead of being the editor of the Nicholsworth. So, um, worked in, uh, and that actually landed me my first full-time job. I was hired full-time at Terrebonne General when, uh, the week before final exams, my senior year, and then I stayed in healthcare for about three years before I came back to Nichols and went back to graduate school at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, and then I've been here ever since. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because you hear this so often when it comes to Nichols specifically, being that it is so small and it is such a tight-knit community. So many people, it's the typical small town of, okay, well, we're here and you never leave. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's part of what makes Nich- Nichols' culture so special uh, to so many people, including myself. Um, so... Whenever you went back, let's let's kind of talk about that. You know, what what inspired you to want to essentially inspire the next generation of journalists for years to come? Well, you know, it had always been kind of an idea in the back of my head that I wanted to be a college professor. And during my senior year of college, I also took the GRE, started applying to grad school, and I actually was supposed to go to grad school full-time when I graduated from Nichols. But Terrebonne General offered me that full-time job, and I just couldn't turn it down. So I went to grad school part-time in Lafayette while working full-time in Homa. I did that for a year. That was nuts. The most insane year of my life. I have no idea what I was thinking when I tried to do that. (laughs) I still try to remember things from that year. And it was also my first year as a married woman. And I remember like nothing. Um, So I always had it in the back of my mind that this was what I wanted to do ultimately. And so I quit grad school stayed in healthcare, went to work for Thibodeau Regional, stayed there a few years, and then it was just, things just kind of worked out right. So the longtime student media advisor, Leslie Marcello, who was my advisor, she had worked at Nichols Advising for 41 years, I believe. Um, She, I always loved what she did and that was one of those jobs that I said one day I want to go to Nichols and either do that or be the director of university relations or teach so she retired and they couldn't find anybody to fill her position and I got a phone call saying from the vice president for academic affairs at the time Dr. Alice Pecorero who said you know we were kind of wondering if you would be interested in coming back to campus and doing this job. We know you started grad school. One condition would be that you'd have to finish it. Um, What do you think? And I I think it was just one of those defining moments where I said, 
this is an opportunity that's literally being placed in my lap and maybe I need to go for it. And, and I did. And I had a young child at the time, my oldest, who's now 19 and in college herself was six months old and said, well, why not? And, and I, I made the leap and it was definitely the best decision I ever made. You know, when they say you find a job, that's a vocation, you know, that you really in your heart know you are meant to do. You really don't work a day in your life. And it's absolutely the truth. This is where I was supposed to be. 100%. I mean, I, I, I can vouch for this. And, you know, one of the things that you and I have had many conversations on, especially in the last uh, several months with the pandemic, the election coming up, of course, politics are hot and heavy. And, you know, right. the media, you just posted something today from uh, <laughs> Glenn Beck. Uh, but I knew you were going to bring that up. I, I had to. <laughs> but, no, it, it's it's an honest truth. The media is very much under attack. And, you know, n- neither you nor I ever, ever sugarcoat the things that they do wrong or sweep under the rug the things that they may get wrong at times. I think you and I both... Mm-hmm look at this from a very clear lens and that's where you and I have always just kind of connected and seen eye to eye. Um, right. And I think from day one of walking into your class, um, you know, it, it was, it was eye opening, you know, I enjoyed your class and I made the joke earlier that I took it twice and it had obviously nothing to do with you as an educator, but more to do <laughs> with me, uh, staying up till four, not going to most of my classes and just being a bum right. my first semester. <laughs> but, um, no, you know, your, your mass com 101 class, I took it twice. I enjoyed it both times just as much as I did the first time. And I retook it because I was like, yeah, I don't want to start off with a C in my first mass com class. So, um, but uh, again, like I said, just being in that first class with you, it, it, it was very, you always came across as endearing, very upfront, very forward about the way you felt about things. And I always respected and appreciated that. And I think that's where you connect best with your students, at least it was for me. Um, so when you say you were meant to do it, I mean, I'd, I'd agree with that tenfold. Well, thanks. Uh, you know, that's always, as an educator, that's that's the best reward. Um, when you find out years down the line that a student still remember something you said or that a student feels like you impacted them in some way shape or form that that's what it's all about absolutely and you know that's that's essentially what separates the 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 good or average teachers from the great ones and i mean if we're going to talk about teachers at nichols and great ones i mean across the board uh, when it comes to the mass comm department there, you, you know, you guys are some of the best. You know, I, I had Lance on here um, two episodes ago, and we talked a lot about this. You know, from from you two to, to Dr. Simon Selly to um, Dr. Stewart, you know, everyone in that department, they, n- number one, you know, the the reason I think I get so heated about when people attack uh, you know, college professors for being too liberal and things like that, and it's something we hear all too often, I'm like, you weren't sitting in my classes and listening to these <laughs> educators say, be fair, be accurate, over and over and over and over again until now it's just ingrained in everything that I write. If I even think I'm slanting something the way it shouldn't be, I'm like, 
okay, let me scale back a little bit. And right. there, there's an there's an honesty to, I feel like, the way I write, and a lot of that comes from you guys. So, um, but with with you, you know, the media literacy is the real big thing that you and I talk a lot about. So, right. l- let's just, a broad view and your, and your take, let's define it. What is media literacy, and why is it so important for you as an educator to... Get your students to understand this concept moving forward with not just maybe their careers, but just their life in general. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know how I feel about media literacy. I absolutely feel that it should be a required course in college for everybody, if not high school. I mean, if, if we backtrack and just try to define it, all we are is talking about learning how to be educated consumers of information and that that educated consumers part is what I want to hone in on you know we use media day in and day out we all do show me one person who doesn't either check social media or a weather app or a news app or something else on their phone when they first wake up I mean you'll be hard-pressed to find people who are not immediately engaging in media content first thing in the morning and last thing before they go to bed and it used to be that that happened in isolated instances you would pick up your newspaper and you'd read it you would tune into the five o'clock local news or the six o'clock national news or the ten o'clock local news You had very specific times and opportunities to gather information. And you knew it was coming from credible sources. It was coming from, you know, your local news media, your local newspaper, etc. Well, fast forward to today, and now we're looking at 24-7 information. And people do not know how to comb through that information. And that's why media literacy is so important. It's recognizing that not only do we have to be educated about the information we interact with, but we also have to recognize that we are a consumer. So, and I don't mean that just in terms of that we are consuming media information. I mean, we are actually consumers who are being advertised to. We are being bought and sold by advertisers. We have to recognize that there are financial and political agendas that are fueling the national news media in a lot of instances. And if we aren't paying attention to that, we lose sight of what journalism really is. And that's when we start using that catch-all term of, quote, unquote, the media. And so I think that's one big problem. And then I think the other big problem is that we don't understand how to use social media. You know, we, I I don't know if you've seen the new documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. It came out about a week ago. I haven't seen it it yet. I've heard of it. You have to watch it. Because what it talks about, one of the quotes from it is, the only two industries that call their consumers users are the illegal drug industry and the media, social media. Hmm. 
call them users. Interesting. But that was an interesting quote. Absolutely. But we don't think about the algorithms and the artificial intelligence that is going on behind the scenes deciding what you see every time you refresh your screen on Facebook or every time you refresh your Twitter feed. So people are actually getting different sets of facts. And I yes. use the term fact very loosely. Absolutely. So, you know, a lot of the fact out there is completely inaccurate, but it's being presented to people through the guise of journalism. And it's, they are getting only things that confirm their biases. So, you know, when we talk about confirmation bias and we talk about cognitive dissonance and we throw all those theories at you guys in college. This is why. It's because that's what helps you to understand the fact that why people are attracted to just information that confirms their beliefs. And that's what's happening on social media. It is being served up to them. You know, I use this analogy talking to another former student earlier today, that it's like people want to consume their media the way they consume delivery pizza. Oh, 100%. They want to sit back and have it served up to them with only the toppings that they want. They don't want to have to go out and get it. They don't want to have to look any further. They just want it delivered to their front door with only the things they like. And I'll, I'll share an anecdotal story of something that happened recently uh, without name dropping because this is a friend of mine. But uh-huh. it was happening during the Republican National Convention. Um, and for the record, this particular friend of mine is very much uh, a very distinct right Republican. Um, and we were just kind of talking. And this happened around the time that I don't know how – how much you followed the NBA, but essentially uh, Luka Doncic uh, for the Dallas Mavericks got called bitch-ass white boy by Montrezl Harrell for the Los Angeles Clippers. So he brought that up, and we started getting into the conversation about that, um, and it devolved into politics, and Joe Biden got brought up into the equation, and we just started talking, and he had echoed something that I've heard far too often, uh, which is that Joe Biden is a socialist who wants to destroy America. And all I did was ask my friend, I was like, look, dude, what, what policies has he ever voted for? Or what has he openly said that makes you think he's a far socialist and wants to destroy America? And he couldn't answer the question as expected, because while Biden is left and he is a Democrat, the notion that he wants to destroy America and that he wants to turn this into a full-blown socialist country, there's just no proof there to definitively defend that. And his response back to me was, oh, I need to research it. So when you start talking about confirmation bias, this is a glaring example of that. Because after asking what I think was the right question and okay defend it he couldn't and he said I need to research it and this is the big problem and when you talk about social media and the way it caters and the way the algorithm works so um I mean you know this that I work in the sector of social media my job is to run ads for small businesses 
and get them in front of that target audience. So I'm essentially playing with the algorithm. Correct. And just to kind of echo off of your point as far as people kind of getting on social media and only seeing what caters to them, what one of the things that I did in particular recently, so one of the political pundits I was listening to very heavily really before the election season heated up was Ben Shapiro. And if I know you're familiar with Ben Shapiro, for anyone who's not listening, Ben Shapiro is very much to the right. Um, but one of the things I like about him is when he gets into a room with other intelligent uh, political pundits, if you will, He's a very smart and very eloquent person to listen to. But much like a lot of us, and I'm the same way, so I'm not going to completely chastise him for this, but when he gets around people who he knows he can kind of just walk over in terms of political opinion, he's he's a smark about it. So um, because I was watching a lot of his videos, you know, it became all of a sudden I'm seeing ads for all the far right news sourcing. I'm seeing ads for Daily Wire saying, subscribe to Daily Wire. You can get your free leftist tears mug. So I started seeing stuff for him, for Fox, for pretty much everything in the right. And so I'm like, okay, cool. Let me step back on this. And I did. And for a couple of months, I didn't really go on YouTube and find any Ben Shapiro videos. I didn't start looking at stuff like that so then facebook's algorithm kind of kind of changed a little bit um and that's that's exactly a, a direct example of what you're talking about as far as it feeding into the the confirmation bias of the consumer and you know you had shared a column of mine a while back that i wrote about essentially media literacy in a nutshell and yep you know, obviously, thank you for sharing it, and it, the response on it was fantastic. There were a lot of people commenting on it, kind of sharing their own two cents, and one of the guys in particular that commented, I had told him back in response, um, I forgot what his uh, direct comment was, but I just kind of said how, uh, you know, it's really up to the consumers to decide how this is going to work, because in theory, it is. If you don't buy what people are selling, they have to change their tune. And that goes for the big dogs like Fox, like CNN, like MSNBC, like HuffPost. And we recently saw this with the NFL. And, of course, now the NFL just started again. You're seeing protests. But back in 2016, during an election year, Colin Kaepernick, of course, kneeled during the anthem. And league-wide protests happened. The ratings fell in 2016. And what you've seen in recent years with the NFL is after an election year, those ratings climb back up. They fell to an even further further historic low in 2017 um, before a small rise in 2018 but still took a hit. And then last season, the NFL finally said, okay, enough is enough. No more protesting during the anthem. The ratings shot back up because the consumers, and this isn't painting the broad brush of all consumers, but there were enough consumers who were watching the NFL on Sundays who made their voice heard by not watching, and the NFL had to change their tune. Whether Correct. you agree with that tune or not is irrelevant, but at the end right. of the day, the businesses are protecting their bottom lines. So when you start unpacking the idea of confirmation bias, it goes so far beyond just social media and even into 
those mainstream sources like we talk about, and it's just such a cluster of mess. And again, this is why I, I agree with you tenfold on this, that consumer education and you know media literacy needs to be taught at a young age because you even see it in some history classes growing up that there's a distinct confirmation bias towards towards American history too so it's it's all around us there's so much propaganda and now once you start diving into the 24/7 news coverage now you're packing an even harder punch just because you're not getting your news every day at 6 now it's coming tenfold through the lens of everything you're looking at 24-7. And that's just it. And it's the, the what people don't really think about. And, I mean, most of us don't. We don't want to think about this stuff. No. When we're scrolling through Facebook, the last thing I want to think about is whether or not my social media feed is being handpicked for me by a computer. But <laughs> right. it is. And so what it's doing is, you know, we've always had political division in our country. I mean, it is, it, you know, we, we are a two-party system by and large. There's always been political division. But social media and the fact that we are being served information to confirm our own biases rather than challenging anything we think we are being served Everybody who is on one side gets served one set of information based on what they like, they click on, they share. Just clicking on it, just spending too much time on reading a post. If that post is a conservative columnist, you are automatically, that algorithm is real-time changing to start providing more information like that to you. And then the same thing is happening on the other side. So we are widening this divide, at least in my opinion. And the fact that people don't think about that is where media literacy becomes so important. Because you're right, the actual, the way you feel or the way I feel politically means absolutely nothing in the frame of media literacy. In the frame of media literacy, the bottom line is we are all guilty, whether you are right, left, or center, we are all guilty of confirmation bias. And we are going to seek out that information that backs up what we believe in. And then as a result, our social media is going to continue to give us that same type of information without showing us anything that contradicts that at all. And so we see everything as being written or produced through one lens. When there's this whole other lens of information out there that we don't even know about. Yeah, and you know, you can kind of pick up on this with with people who are engaging in the confirmation bias fairly easily, um, especially through social media, because the ones who are the most vocal on social tend to share the most stuff, and I'm one of those people. Um, so I'm not I'm not criticizing anyone for being vocal or sharing information. You should, but it's about sharing the right information. If if you scroll through the timeline of a friend who is sharing Daily Wire, Fox, uh, whatever far right sourcing that is out there, there's plenty. Um, you know, it it's pretty safe to assume that those people are only engaging in one side of the coin. 
if you see someone sharing nothing but MSNBC, HuffPost, um, I'll even throw BuzzFeed out there with their wokeness. Um, you know, if you, if you only see stuff from that side, then there's probably a good chance they're only looking at it from the left side of the lens. So it's Correct. it's it's really easy to pick pick out the people who are not doing their due diligence. And, you know, one of the points that you had made about uh, consumers is the political divide right now in this country. And this is an interesting thing that I've always kind of thought to myself, and I'll, I'll just bring it up to you. Um, okay. So uh, growing up, there were two topics that were always off limits, and clearly I have followed those directions tenfold. That is politics and religion. You know, I was always told don't talk about those things. And in essence, I'm I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, aren't these kind of important topics we should talk about? So naturally, I gravitated towards mass communications and media. Um, but those are the two things we were told not to talk about. Now... I don't. I, I don't think parents are openly telling their kids you shouldn't discuss these things anymore, um, because well, we see everyone on social talking about them. But when we talk about the political divide in this country, something I hear uh, specifically from people I'm close to is the political divide is worse now than ever, and it may be true. But I I always kind of follow that up with, well, is it really the case, or is this just an underlying? Uh, you know, level of feeling that's always been there because one of the things we're seeing now in 2020 and now that more information is coming to light, I don't think divorce has gotten out of hand. I don't think things like domestic violence has all of a sudden increased over time. I just think because people have the outlet now, it's easier to spot all the negatives in people's lives now. And I just think this is how people have always been in a nutshell, but you go back 50 to 60 years, it was much easier to hide those emotions, those feelings, and those actions. And now I just think it's all bubbling to the surface before the lid just kind of blows off of it. And maybe it already has. And, you know, you may be right. Because if you think back to, to, I mean, I know I'm bringing up all these media theories that you probably haven't had to think about in a long time, but if you remember agenda setting and the basic concepts behind agenda setting is that the media tells us what to think about. So, you know, through things like priming, where we think an issue is more important if we're already primed to think about it. So, because we're seeing a lot about it, right? Or if we're talking about framing, so there we're looking at the lens through which information is put it put together or left out. It used to be that the agenda was set by the news media. You know, the agenda was set by what was happening in, you know, the major metro newspapers, what was being shown on the nightly national news, and then locally the agenda was set by the local daily papers and the local TV news stations. But now the agenda, because of social media, we are all essentially content creators. And I use that term loosely, but it's like citizen journalism in a way. But instead we're giving... We're putting, it's like citizen opinion opinion columns is what it is, citizen editorials. 
So we're all putting, and look, I'm guilty of it too. I love social media. I love to share stuff on social media. That's why I got into such a tizzy today and was fussing on social media about <laughs> journalism. But, you know, sometimes you just can't keep your mouth shut. No. It's it's a fault of mine sometimes. Well, but there's anyway. a reason you and I both went in to study this stuff because, well, yeah. we're passionate about it. Yeah, and, and but the deal is that whole agenda-setting concept we're seeing it change now mm -hmm. because, you know, I think back to, you know, even 2005, 2006, when I probably first got Facebook and Facebook was, you could only get it if you had a .edu email address. Yeah. So you could only get it if you were a college student or if you were a professor and had a .edu. So I was truly an early adopter when it came to Facebook. So when you look at it now, comparing today to 2005, you know, we're just talking 15 years ago, back in 2005, agenda setting was still predominantly done by the news media. Today, that's not the case at all. I mean, the agenda setting is being done by the media consumers through social media and through the information that they are receiving on social media. Whether or not that information is accurate, in many instances, you know, remains to be seen. Right, and you're seeing that happen plenty through this pandemic because people are on social media more, have been at mm -hmm. least, um, although that number sort of flattened out in the last couple of months. But for the first three months... You know, I was looking at this stuff uh, simply because of the line of work I'm in, but uh, social media usage went through the roof. Facebook actually was understaffed because of how much traffic the site was getting. They, they didn't have enough staff to essentially keep up with it, um, uh -huh. which if I'm not mistaken, Facebook actually shut down, I believe, in March, right when all the lockdowns happened for a couple of hours. Um but, you know, through the pandemic, you know, you talk about sharing the information and being the journalist. How many conspiracy theories have gone viral at this point? Oh, my God. It's, it's insane. And yeah. <laughs> they want to – and yeah. people want to turn around and talk about the media being inaccurate. And it's like, dude, look in the mirror. Yeah, and, and that's frustrating. It's frustrating to see the number of conspiracy theories that have been – share over and over again and you know that goes back to some of our other biases and the way that we will look at things like um credibility you know if you put a pair of scrubs on somebody or a white coat automatically they're credible mm -hmm. I mean, if you put a white coat on me and i said that i was a medical professional you would believe me because i had on a white coat it's how many people are taking those names and then doing something real simple, like going on Google and searching that person and where they say they're from and what they say their job is. I have done that so many times since this pandemic started. And that's what I really want people to understand is that we have a responsibility. You know, it's not Facebook can't make sure that all of the information coming to you is accurate that's not their job although they have tried to flag things that are completely false but it's your job as a consumer to consume media from multiple outlets 
to make sure that those outlets, if they do tend to have any sort of ideological bias, that you pick one outlet at least on each side, okay? So if there's a political bias or some other ideology that there's a bias, that you, you know, you kind of look at something on the other side too. And then if there's something that seems too outrageous to be true, it probably is. So right. do your due diligence and research it on your own. You know, Google is, you know, it's amazing the amount of stuff that you can find in a simple Google search or a simple Facebook search that will show you if a person is credible or not. Right. And, you know, kind of playing off of that point, take a look at the, again, going back to the conspiracy theories, the Frontline Doctors video. You know, one of one of the things that happened, I had made a post about the Frontline Doctors, which if you're listening and you missed this, it was a viral video that eventually got taken down of the same Bakersfield doctor from California and, uh, who went viral back when this all started, as well as some other doctors, one of which um, basically, for all intents and purposes, we'll just call her a witch doctor. She does a lot of very unique and weird practice methods. Uh, she's also has a church She's also a preacher um, and kind of combines the two uh, the two workforces, essentially. So, um, you know, I was talking with a buddy of mine, and one of the things he told me was, you know, well, we should take it at face value because she's a doctor. I'm like, yeah, but look at her medical history of practicing this. And he had mentioned how some of the things he has seen have shown that the combination of the the medicine that they were preaching or the method of curing, if you will, which they obviously didn't cure COVID, um, it, was, it was working. Well, when he tried to tell me I should take all that at face value and they're taking a very small sample size of patients that they're seeing versus the large scale, I was like, look, I was like, as a writer, I know you and I don't see eye to eye on a lot of things, but... If 90% of the things I wrote, you could easily smell the bullshit, why would you believe the one thing that may be 100% true? Right. That that goes back to credibility. Exactly. And, you know, when it comes to credibility, you know, I I had said this to you, and the the article that I referenced that you shared, you know, one of the things that you and I had talked about, one of the things I said to you that – summed up this 2500 word piece in just very broad terms was once you start researching enough for yourself it becomes much easier to smell the bullshit when you find it because there's so many people i know friends of mine people i've just been associated with who literally can't and i've heard people openly say well how do i know what's truth and what isn't i'm like if I have to sit here and strip down the basic fundamentals of how to research something, that's something you need to take time to educate yourself on because, and that goes back to kind of what you feel about needing media literacy to be taught. Um, Well, and the research part, you know, we have not been, if you think about the, the development of media over time, we didn't have to, as consumers, 
be as nearly as concerned with doing any of the research on our own because it was being presented to us through fairness, accuracy, objectivity, and balance. And I know you've heard those four words being said <laughs> over and over and over again that they are probably rammed into your brain. But, you know, it used to be that that's what the media did for us. But now there's simply too much information coming from too many places that you can't, unless you take a piece of information and look at that source and then say, okay, is this a credible source? Is this a biased source? And there's a great chart out there that will sh- it's redone every year. I can't remember who does it, but it's a media bias. Yes, chart. I know exactly which one. It's a nonpartisan organization that puts this out, and it shows you where media outlets fall. And honestly, if you want the best, most unbiased, fair, and accurate news. You need to go to the two water services. Absolutely. Reuters and the AP. That's the best place if you want to get news. So, you know, if you're getting all this information from all these places and then you're thinking, I wonder if this is true or not, go to the AP or go to Reuters and see if they've covered it. If they haven't, it's probably not real. 100%. You know, some of the other sources, because this was a question that actually got asked to both you and I. Um, after you shared that, because people just don't know. They, you know, they, they, when they think media, they think Fox, MSNBC, CNN, and that's it. That's all they think right. about. And, right. and that's natural because those are the three pillars, I feel like, of the U.S. But, you know, when, when it comes to sourcing and, you know, aside from the wire services, now, of course, these also lean in certain directions. Um, you know, several that I like, NPR, you know, you have yes. to go in with the assumption that NPR is going to lean a little bit to the left. Another one that I like is Vox. It's another example of someone who leans to the left. Two examples on the right that I love reading personally are Forbes um, yes. and uh, Wall Street Journal. But both of those also, you have to go in understanding that those lean to the right. And this goes into this question. And my whole inspiration, and I keep coming back to this column because it essentially unpacked all of these topics, but the entire premise for writing this column was a quote that I heard on a podcast that I sent to you, and you, funny enough, and I told this story with Lance on the podcast, you you sent me back literally a screenshot of this on your desktop, and you were like, yeah, this is the first thing I tell my students, but... Um, the, essentially the quote is the job of a journalist is not to say person A says it's raining outside. Person B says it's not raining outside. The job of a journalist is to open the fucking window and figure out whether it's raining outside. And this, this is where the, the, what journalism used to be comes into play because fairness, objectivity, first and foremost, above all else. But the one thing that I don't necessarily think journalism needs is balance in today's political climate because we are seeing so much teetering so far to the left and so far to the right by certain talking heads by certain pundits by certain sourcing that it's okay to be biased we all have them we are all registered under democrat republican or independent 
in this country. And if you say you're independent, there's still some biases there. That doesn't mean you're free of it. Um, oh, for sure. So, for sure. So bias, I don't think, is a problem today because of how much flow of information there is. But, you know, that's why I think when people start talking about bias, I don't think they're painting it in the correct brushstroke, if you will, because we're all going to have biases. They're all going to be there, but it's about seeking out those biases and understanding when those biases are prohibiting you from seeing whether or not it's raining outside. Well, you know, I agree and I disagree because I still think, you know, yes, we all have biases. Journalists 20, 30, 40, 50, 75 years ago all had biases, personal biases. But we used to be, it used to be that a journalist would go into a situation, they would check their bias and say, okay, how can I present this story with letting as little personal bias as possible into it? Today, I feel like we have come to accept journalism that's not journalism so you know i posted that thing that glenn beck said about if you have a journalism degree you are an enemy of mankind now i mean granted take it with a grain of salt it is glenn beck it just got (laughs) under my skin but the bottom line is yes we all have biases but as a journalist if you're a real journalist you're supposed to be able to present that piece like if you're a reporter for the ap You're supposed to be able to present that piece that shows both sides equally. Yes, you may have a little bit bias in what gets put in first and what gets put in second. You know, it's going to creep in in some places. But this call today that I'm seeing, and I've read a few things recently about it, saying that we should no longer expect journalists to be unbiased. I don't buy that because I think then journalism would become nothing more than editorializing and I think that we have a much bigger job to do than that and I think that people for so long have been looking at these talking heads and pundits on these 24-hour news networks and taking them as journalists when they are the farthest thing from journalists and I'm afraid that if we stop requiring journalists to do as much as they can to leave their biases out and I think we're doing a disservice to the the people that we have vowed to serve. No, and I agree with that. I think uh, to, just to kind of further clarify my point is what I'm saying when I say sometimes you have to be more biased is there's essentially going to be a talking point from the right and the left. And in some cases, the right and the left is 100% truthful. So that's where I, I think this needs to sort of become known that just because you're agreeing with the right or the left doesn't necessarily mean you're being biased or you're being wrong. If the right or the left, if what they're saying is factual, then that's what it is. Um, because I, I, I think, I, I, like I said, to further clarify, I think where people get lost is in terms of what bias is. Because we've basically gotten to a point where it's, yeah, I'm team Democrat or I'm team Republican. And no matter what the other side says, I'm still on this team. And it's okay to crap or poo-poo all over the political party you're affiliated with because 
There's going to be a point in time where they're going to be wrong, dead wrong about something. Um, so I think that's kind of where I'm coming from in terms of bias versus unbiased because I, I just think, again, as as consumers and seeing what you see on social media, I don't think people truly understand or grasp the bias and unbiased side of it. And kind of kind of furthering that point here, I think a real reason, so one of the things you brought up is um, you know, this this legitimate talking point now of whether or not we just want uh, journalism to be opinions and editorialized. And I think a big reason you're hearing that and, you know, if I'm stepping on any toes for anybody listening, you know, it is what it is. But I think a big part of that is because of what's going on with the current state of the presidency in the White House, because there's a lot of criticisms out there towards the media in this country, specifically from journalists in other countries, um, basically saying they they kind of sweep under the rug a lot of a lot of the things that President Trump will say. Uh, either on Twitter or in press conferences, and I think that's the the big catalyst for why a lot of people feel just go full editorial aspect of it because there are a lot of journalists out there I feel like who just aren't are doing too much to try to be quote unquote unbiased when in fact they're sort of helping one side or the other because they're not ready, willing, and able to call out what needs to be called out, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I can see where you're coming from. And there, you know, okay, let me put let me put it this way. It gets difficult when you're talking about it from a political standpoint. It really does. Absolutely. But for example, you know, you can probably remember me saying this more times than not in student media when you were working for the Nicholsworth, when a student would say, well, I don't know if we should write this because so-and-so is going to get upset or it's going to piss people off. 100%. And my response was always, if it pisses somebody off, that means we're doing our job. Okay? So it's not that I think that we shouldn't point out what is right and what is wrong because, I mean, without a doubt, that is what we need to do. And if that gets you painted as being biased, then so be it. But, you know, from a, a, a student media standpoint, the times that we've had to um, work through stories where students wanted to point out things that were going on with the university that were not right. They were biased in a way because they were students and it was it was impacting them. But at the same time, they were following truth. And so I think that if we follow truth, we're still going to piss people off in the interim. We're still going to have people say that we're biased. We're going to have people say that we're doing it wrong. Whether we're talking about local politics, national politics, or just life in general, people are going to, you're going to piss somebody off. 100%. And if you are, that means you're doing your job because you are actually out there seeking out the truth. So I think to me that's what it all comes down to is truth and finding the truth because people by and large are not used to having to go out and find the truth for themselves. I just feel like 
we are presenting too much of it as opinion or editorial and not enough as true, accurate, unbiased news in that frame of the word. For sure. Unbiased, being unbiased to me doesn't mean that you don't point out what people are doing wrong, even if it's people you normally agree with. I mean, what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. And as journalists, our job is to find the truth and report it. You know, seek truth and report it. Goes back to the very first part of the Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics. Seek truth and report it. It's what it all comes down to for me. Absolutely. And uh, again, so I think you and I are in agreement on this. Um, I just think it's from a societal standpoint, I think a lot of people don't view it as in that same regard, kind of like what you said a second ago, you don't have a problem if you call out someone and, you know, that needs to be called out essentially. And I think that's, that's a big hurdle that the media is going to have to get over with the current state of society and the consumers, because, Again, I, I just feel like it's become so team red, team blue. Um, and I think that's essentially the the biggest battle in this country right now. Um, and as far as what you kind of said about pissing people off, uh, being a journalist, I'll, I'll, I like to share some stories, one of which I will. Um, I remember back when, you know, I was doing the sports editor for the, for the Worth, um, I did a story on international students, and this is just to kind of share a, a... This was supposed to be a lighthearted story, but this is how finicky the line becomes when you start writing and publishing something in a paper, even if it is... Even if it isn't the New York Times and it is a, a school paper. People read it. Um, coaches read it. And... I had written a story on international students and I wanted to share kind of the experience through their lens because one of the reasons I absolutely love Nichols is the amount of international students we had. Um, Mm -hmm. The sports teams brought them in tenfold. There's a lot of people from Canada on the soccer team. They're from all over on the tennis team. The the basketball team had an Australian pipeline for a long time. and I was I, I had interviewed one of the basketball players who is from Australia, and his direct quote for me. And I remember going into your office and asking you, "Look, should I print this?" Um, he was like, "Yeah." When I first got here, and he was referring to when he was in high school, you know, there was a language barrier. Despite the fact they speak English, they have different terminology for things than we do. So. Um, he comes from Australia. He's sitting in the back of a high school class, and this was his direct quote. He said, you know, I'd sit in the back of the classroom. Teachers would assign sit, assign, uh, assign us work, and I'd just sit there like a dumbass because I didn't know what was going on. And part of that came from the school system and the way they operated, some of which came from the sort of language barrier. And I, I addressed that in the article, but I also used that quote because I'm thinking to myself, well, I like this quote because it's honest and it's funny. Um, but of course, there's also this is this kind of blends in perfectly to what you were talking about earlier about blending PR and journalism, because the journalist in me says print it. The PR person says, well, that could piss someone off. And it did because you got a call from coach from the basketball coach saying, why would you let somebody print that? And I, I think you had told me your response to him was, well, did he say it? He said he did. Then he can print that. <laughs> like, 
And yeah, and and there's a difference between can and should, and I think at that at that point in that particular instance, I mean, we're talking about you've got to take it in context. We're talking about a college student who is saying that he's got a language barrier, and he's telling that as, as a kind of funny anecdote. Right. I don't see anything. I don't see anything wrong with pregnant. And I do remember that phone call, and I do remember <laughs> basically saying, "Well, he said it. Yes. Well, then it was. You know, he didn't say it, and then turn around and say, "Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Please don't write that. That would have been a different story." Right. So that was just one We've of the. We had a few of those doozies happen over the years. Yeah, I won't get into the <laughs> one that uh, you know I'm referencing. Um, oh. Yeah, we won't go there, but uh, no, no, it's, and that was always one of the things that, again, I just had a lot of respect for you with. You, you openly, despite working for the university, you took, you take your job serious, you know, you, you would defend your, your, your staff if you felt your staff was in the right, and that's what journalism is supposed to be. I mean, how many, how many Angry phone calls do editors feel daily where they have to defend their staff. And it was no different for you. Not to say that those <laughs> phone calls came as much as the New York Times, but they still did no, come. But, oh, they did come. I mean, the, the probably the best one was when I had someone actually call me and tell me um, that we were the students were writing a sex column, which is very <laughs> I remember this. Very, very common in college student media. Very, very common and happens all over the country. We, Nichols has not had many in our years, but we did at this time. And, you know, it's student-run media. The students make the decisions. I'm just the advisor. So, you know, this, this person called in and was very, very upset and did not think that the Nicholsworth should be printing the sex column and in her conversation with me when she asked me if I enjoyed reading it and I said well I mean it's not my cup of tea but you know this paper is not this is not my paper this I'm not the target audience for the paper and the response was well you're no better than a madam in a whorehouse you're wow. you may not uh, you may not agree with what the girls are doing but you're still putting them out there to do it that's what she said I will never forget that day I will never forget that data who knew by student being a student media advisor i was as bad as a madam in a whorehouse somebody actually said those words to me yeah so you know you learn to develop a little bit of a thicker skin when you're in journalism and you have to and you know we have to recognize that there is a business model in journalism that needs to be addressed especially in national journalism we have to recognize that there is a problem with the model that the business model that runs social media. I'm telling you, go watch the social dilemma. We've got to admit that there is a problem behind that because it is a manipulation of information that people are exposed to based on their preferences. So it is just creating this huge confirmation bias that we can't get out from under. So are there issues that need to be addressed without? question but we also you know just to bring home my main point is we have got to be better about being media consumers and doing our due diligence and doing our own research and then demanding if you think something is wrong with the industry demand better 
100%. Um, now we're running short on time here, but before we uh, wrap up, I do uh, I do want to give you the floor a little bit. Uh, you know, we've pretty much unpacked journalism here and definitely one of my favorite episodes. I'm looking forward to playing this one back. Um, but I, I know you have a lot going on with, with Nichols. Um, so you had mentioned to me through text and unfortunately we didn't get to cover this, but we will on a later episode. Definitely want to have you back. Um, but you're, you've recently, you've recently dove into sort of a new sector, uh, with, with Nichols. So just in, in a nutshell, give us a little teaser for what that is for whenever we do have you back on. Well, you know, as you may know, Nichols is the closest to the coast in terms of universities, closest as the crow flies. And so what happens in coastal Louisiana has a huge impact on our university, on our people, on our culture, on our land. Um, And so one thing that I've been interested in probably for 20 years now is issues related to coastal erosion and restoration. And so, you know, I have kind of started working in environmental communications. I've been doing some partnerships with the Barataria Terrebonne National Estuary Program. And I also started an environmental communications course. I've taught it twice now, what will be the third time starting in January, where students are learning how to, inco- how to cover environmental journalism and do environmental public relations from the standpoint of preserving coastal Louisiana's heritage, culture, land, and learning about the ecosystem in which we live. So that's my new thing. That's awesome. Um, and like I said, uh, we can definitely talk about that on another episode. Um, yeah, I'd love yeah, it. I'd love to have you back. And one last thing before we wrap up. Um, you know, I I was getting ragged on in uh, my fantasy football league group uh, just recently uh, the other day, and one of the things that they ragged on me for, and it just kind of it just kind of brought memories back, and I thought about it, so I'll bring it up. But uh, they ragged on me for the amount of incessantly stupid phrases that I have that I just don't let die. <laughs> And I like, thought you for coming out, we'll call you. Exactly. I didn't even have to ask you to say it. You knew exactly where I was going. But oh, oh man, that was one yes. of my favorite things. I remember uh, one of the traditions, and I hope you guys still do it. Um, but one of the traditions was if you're a senior, you kind of write your send off piece. And it was funny. Uh-huh. So I wrote that as the close to my send off piece for Nichols. And I remember my roommate at the time, Abasi, he was like, Dude, you did not write that in the paper. I was like, oh, 100%. Go pick that shit up and read it right now. <laughs> How many times did I hear you say that? Thanks for coming out. We'll call you. I love it. I'll never forget it. Hey, you know, at least I left a lasting impression. That was good. Without a doubt. But thanks, Nikki. I really appreciate you coming on. And as always... Honor the huddle. This episode is sponsored by Cheers for Ears. No Disney trip or Disney theme party is complete without your very own character-customized Mickey ears. That's right. Any theme you want made right into your Mickey ears or Mickey hat. They're festive, fun, and affordable. For my family's next Disney trip, I purchased our very own Mike and Sully themed hats for my son and I. We absolutely love them and will use them for our trips here on out. 
Get your very own custom ears and let them make your dreams come true so you can look great and live your happily ever after in good fashion for your next trip. Receive 10% off if you let them know Hotard Huddle referred you. That's Cheers for Ears. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram at Cheers for Ears. Visit the information section on the episode or HotardHuddle.com for more information about their social pages and email. Again, Cheers for Ears. Receive 10% off your purchase when you let them know Hotard Huddle referred you. So bring some added magic to your next Disney trip with Cheers for Ears. Thank you for tuning in to the Hotard Huddle podcast. Stay up to date with all the latest episodes released on the 1st and 15th of every month at HotardHuddle.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hotard Huddle.